you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Luke 17, the Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter, where we want to give consideration this evening. Just encourage you if you are wondering about that mission trip. Uh, as I said this morning, the spaces probably are limited. Um, I'm not even sure. I'm sure the Reverend Bowman has looked into this with regard to uh, where they're going to stay when they go up there. It's not like Fort Kent is a big metropolis of all sorts of hotels and so on. I'm not quite sure what's available, but I'm assuming that there will be sufficient, and they'll manage all of that, but there may not be all that many spaces available, but just to encourage you that that's gone out today to all of our churches, so interest will be coming in, not just from here, but all the congregations, so don't hesitate if you are interested. So in our study in the Gospel of Luke, we've come to chapter 17, and we want to read verse 1, there was some uh, remarks made this afternoon. We were having lunch with some remarks made about uh, who would not turn up this evening after <laughs> what we considered this morning and given what's going on today in the sporting world. And uh, so if you notice anyone missing, you can text them and ask them what's the score and uh, see if they're able to give you the answer, <laughs> and then rebuke them afterwards. <laughs> Look, chapter 17. Let's read from verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea, then that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, Go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he, not, doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants." We have done that which was our duty to do. Amen. Ending at the end of verse 10. This is the Word of God. May we receive it in our hearts by faith and apply it to our lives. And may God give us light to understand it tonight. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our God, we thank you again for the themes of your Word. And as we have been singing with the desire that you would have your way in our lives. How easy it is to sing. It's much more difficult to walk through that spirit and to resign when it's hard to do so. We don't struggle with the things we don't struggle with. It's the things that, that we find difficult where we 
And we're just so confident at times that we can manage things and then things come out of nowhere and we are caught off guard and then we try to we try to find excuses and reasons why we should not be under the authority of the word of our master. Help us then to resign ourselves to our God at all times, on all occasions, and all seasons, and to be meek and humble no matter what challenges we face. Bless your word then. Give help in the declaration of it. May it be received with profit. Build up your people. And should there be those without Christ, may they also be brought to a saving knowledge of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most memorable pieces of advice I have ever been given, may not be the best piece of advice, but certainly, as I say, one of the most memorable is to stay low, go slow, and don't blow. And that has always stuck in my head. Stay low, that idea of not trying to raise yourself up and make much of yourself. Go slow, don't be hasty and running around and trying to push things and, and getting yourself into trouble through your hastiness. And don't blow, don't brag, don't, don't constantly be talking up yourself. It applies at every season of life. We are so quick to find reasons to elevate ourselves. Now, we don't say that. We don't talk that way. At least I imagine most of us are careful enough in our speech. And yet there is that element within all of us that, that wants recognition, that desires that we somehow be appreciated and valued, and especially at certain times we can just be caught off guard where we're, we're expecting to be appreciated. We're expecting to get positive feedback or something to come to us, and it doesn't come. And then it begins to bother us because we, though we wouldn't say it, we sort of feel like, well, we deserve this at least. But do we? Do we? Now, I know there, there's a right way and there's a proper way of, of showing appreciation. And people should show appreciation. And there is, there, there's a place for respecting and giving honor where honor is due and all of those things. But we have to we just, when we catch ourselves in that place, well, why was I not appreciated? Or, or why didn't anyone say something to me? I was just as involved in that. I've, I've had discussions with people <laughs> Along those lines, I'll name no names, but uh, we've had discussions like this. And again, it's just, well, well, why were you doing it? Were you doing it for the recognition? Is that, is that why? Is that what motivates you? And so it's good advice. Stay low, go slow, don't blow. Get involved in what God calls you to. Give your heart to God's work and service where you're able to apply your gifts and if no one notices, there's one who does. There's one who sees. Now, in considering the verses that commence chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, it would be very tempting, and it was very tempting, to think about breaking it all down and looking at the various subjects and doctrines that are revealed here. <clears throat> the whole idea of being a stumbling block the whole idea of repentance and forgiveness and the, the transaction of forgiveness that is dealt with, the, the subject of faith that is dealt with in verse 5 and 6, and, and so on. These are all subjects that we could just pause over each of them and then mine out and, and, and seek to understand in and of themselves. But I want us to, to see these opening ten verses in their collective and, and see the connection between them all. And I've titled the message tonight simply, Christ's unprofitable servants. Christ's unprofitable servants. You can see it from the end of the passage. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which were commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. That's all we are. This is what you're instructed to say. Don't look for recognition. Don't look for the pat on the back. Don't look for some elevated 
response because of the things that you've done. You have done that which was your duty to do. You did what you were meant to. So, as we consider this, the Lord is giving counsel to His servants, to His people, to His apostles. You see it there in verse 5. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. They're right there in the mix. And no doubt central in His view. Then said He unto the disciples, verse 1 begins. So, He's looking at those that have committed themselves to Him, and He's saying, here's how I want you to live. Here's the perspective I want you to have. And the bottom line, believer, is this. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't go around with an elevated view of yourself. And this is all sorts of application, as we shall see. First of all, in helping his servants with regard to this, note their view of sin, their view of sin. The Lord Jesus helps calibrate how we should view sin in the opening two verses. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. In verse 2, the idea of the millstone, just so you know, you may be aware that within the home often there would have been a, a hand-use millstone. And so you have the, the heavier stone in the bottom and then the lighter stone in the top, and it'd be used by hand for, for small amounts of grain. But there was also the larger millstone. It may have been owned by a community or a, a, a more wealthy family, but a larger millstone that was driven not by the hand of a man or a woman, but driven by a donkey or some kind of animal. And so it was much heavier, much larger, and the animal would drive that, and they would be able to put through much more grain and uh, be more efficient with regard to the amount they would be able to deal with. Now, now that larger one is what the Lord has in view. The, the Greek gives an insight into the, the millstone being one that was be used or driven by a donkey or some kind of animal. And so the sense then clearly is it was better for him that a millstone, this massive stone, were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea. There's no deliverance here. You're going to the bottom. You will drown. There's no way that you can save yourself. The idea then is that there's such a weight that there's terrible condemnation that comes upon the one that is guilty of what is being described here. Now, as we look at these verses, note firstly about sin, its inevitability. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. Sin is everywhere. Everywhere. You can't avoid it. It's impossible. It is out in the world. Wherever you go, sin is there. You don't really have to look for it. It's on display in all sorts of ways beyond what could be described here tonight. If you, it, it, you just look everywhere you go. You go into the workplace, sin is there. You, you drive down the road, sin is there. We were just remarking going to someone else's home this afternoon from church uh, and, and not meaning anything about this, but just our way home, I was very thankful that our way home doesn't go this direction because it's much more commercial. And it feels very different than the more, say, rural and smaller roads that we take to our home. And I was just thinking about that on the way to their home. I thought, I'm, I'm actually thankful that we don't have to drive this way every Lord's Day. Even that. Because you can see all sorts of sin going on around you if you're paying Attention. Sin is everywhere. Everywhere. It is inescapable. You, you, you go into the world and you, you see it all around you. Our, our kids are going to be confronted with it. We isolate them. We keep them in our homes. We send them to Christian schools. We imagine that maybe that in some way will protect them from sin, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Certainly there may be a sense in which Christian school or homeschool may isolate some sins from them, but, but you're just talking about degree. They're going to see every sin, every type of sin, any, every category of sin is going to be before them. There's no escaping it. The young person imagines, if I could just, if I could just get married, then I would no longer struggle with lust. I would get rid of sin. I would, it would, 
It would, I would, everything would be fine then if I could just get married. No, that's not how it works. There's, sin is everywhere. It is everywhere. You are not getting away from it. It is in you. It is around you. It is everywhere. Now this fact, the fact that sin is everywhere, home, church, school, work, is not meant to make us numb. It's not meant to remove vigilance. In fact, I might say the language of our Lord Jesus here is to heighten our vigilance. It is impossible, but the offenses will come. It's not meant for us to respond to it and say, well, what's the point then? What he does instead is that he, he hones in on how then his people living in such a world should consider the inevitability of sin. Which brings us then to consider its influence. Not only its inevitability, but its influence. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him. Here's where the application comes. Just because it's everywhere doesn't mean to say you forget about it. Like it's just, it's just a problem in the world. There's nothing we can do about it. It's something we try to ignore or brush under the carpet. No. No, no. There is something very pointed that we need to consider. And that is its influence. Because though it is everywhere, what each disciple is taught here is woe unto him through whom they come. In other words, you don't get to say that because sin is everywhere, what difference does it make when I add my little bit? You don't get to say, well, they've done all of this. It doesn't matter then if I do this little thing. No, it does matter. So the fact that sin is everywhere is not an excuse for us to carry on carelessly in our living. Rather, we should see what the Lord is saying. If I am one that contributes, and I contribute in the sin of the community or the home or the church or whatever in such a way that causes offense, woe, woe to that person. Has our Lord got your attention? I hope he does. When you read these verses, they should make us sit up. As you think of the influence then of these offenses, these sins and things that come against others, I thought of it in a number of ways. I thought of the influence of inconsistent manners. Our Lord wants the, the whole manner of his disciples to be different. Those surrounded by sin, their manner is to be different. You can think of Galatians chapter 5, for example, where you have the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Our Lord, our Lord wants us to not be manifesting the, the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh bring offense into the world. They cause harm. They hurt people. You think of what it says, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. In other words, Paul essentially said, I could go on. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's language there is very strong. If you're given to these practices, if you're adding these offenses into the world, you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. That fits, does it not, with the language of our Lord Jesus. Woe unto him through whom the offenses come. You cause offense. You bring the sin, you add it and multiply it into the world. Don't think lightly of it. So every professing believer should look at the manner of their life. We should be careful and ask ourselves, in what ways do I manifest the, the works of the flesh? I mean, there are certain things put in there that aren't necessarily even doing direct harm to other people. Think, think of idolatry. You think, well, idolatry is just something between me and the thing that I worship. What harm does it do? But it does do harm. It does do harm. 
When men worship that which is not God, it brings offense. I mean, you see that, don't you? You read through the the Old Testament and you find the influence of idol worship and it, it has this leavening, this negative leavening influence in the community. The influence of inconsistent manners, the whole conduct of our lives. We have to ask ourselves, am I guilty of offenses? Am I adding to the offenses in this world? Woe unto me if that is the case. Also, the influence of inconsistent speech. I was thinking about speech particularly, not just the manner of, of our life and the way we live, but our speech. The offense of our speech. You think of irritable speech. Some of, some of us are inclined to irritable speech. And, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because we're weighed down with a lot of responsibilities at certain seasons. Maybe it's lack of sleep. Perhaps, you know, list the reasons we can give. <laughs> but if we are causing offense, you don't get to brush it off. Irritable speech, that irritated manner that others are on the receiving end of, where they can hear it in your tone. And Woe unto him through whom they come. Think of critical speech, how we can be critical. I'm not talking about constructive criticism here, I'm talking about harmful criticism. When you're constantly criticizing, when, when you're unable to find good in others, I've dealt with this before because it's, a, it's something I have had to fight in me because I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I, I find fault in things. I do. And my, my children can bring a picture to me and I, the immediate, I see immediately you know, where they've come up short or where it's not quite right and, and I can see it. And I, it's like there. And my tendency is to begin there. I'm just... I'm just letting you know, if you're not already aware, that's, that's something I've struggled with for years. And I have had to realize, number one, it's not necessarily bad that you can see that. It's not wrong that you can see it. The thing is, how do you frame it? And how do you help? Or are you just harming? Are you causing your children to go away and say, I'm never drawing again? Or can you use it as a way to actually help them improve and progress? So I, I think I'm getting better. I don't know. Talk to my wife and my children. <laughs> I think I'm getting a little better at it. Certainly Lois has been on a little, uh, let's say, kind of uh, interest in, in drawing certain things. And, and uh, she's been coming to me. She always brings them to me. Hey, look, what do you think of this? And so on. And, and she keeps doing it. So as long as she keeps doing it and she's improving and so on, I think, well, I mustn't be discouraging her or causing her to think there's no point in doing this. She's, she's improving all the time. But we men, we men are, we tend to this even more so than women. Women can do it, but we, I think we tend to it. The idea of provoking our children to wrath and through our criticism. The influence of proud speech. This is not to be found. It, it's to, it causes offense. Proud speech causes offense. The influence of anxious speech, constantly being worried and speaking in fearful tones. Does this not influence people? Can it not be a means of, of it? offense to them? So our speech. Woe unto him through whom they come. This is a word to the disciples. Woe. Don't accept it. Don't say this isn't as bad as what's going on out there. If you cause offense, woe to you. We should all be convicted right now. All of us. The influence of inconsistent views. By inconsistent, I speak of those views that are against the Word of God. There are people out there, and let me speak of ministers specifically that influence people, that bring offense to people, the way they talk about abortion, and they make it an acceptable position to have that abortion is, a, is viable either in certain contexts or uh, in, in such ways that they think they're defending the innocent, but they're not. 
So they encourage abortion. They encourage homosexuality. They encourage living together before marriage. When I say encourage, by the way, I'm not saying they tell people to go and do it, but their language doesn't cause them to to do otherwise, to be fearful of it. They present views that broaden the grounds for divorce. Woe unto him. Woe unto him. And the pulpits of America are filled with such characters, way more than I ever would have imagined. I'll not bore you with this again, but it's, it's, it's like, really? Are there that many? Are, are, is, it so, is it so prevalent? Yes, it is. Far more so than, than any of us perhaps are aware. The apostasy is real. The downgrade spiritually, theologically in the church is undeniable. And Jesus says, Woe unto him through whom they come. Offenses. Men who stand up and encourage the moral deterioration of society. Men who put up fences around those that are destroying what the Word of God says concerning the Lord's expectation of us. Now, of course, this may have application to the world. Woe unto him through whom they come to the world, the offenses to those that are outside the church. And we should be careful of our testimony. We, we ought to. I mean, we, obviously, there are going to be times when the world differs with us and when our faithfulness brings their hatred and opposition. But we shouldn't go looking to be deliberately offensive or unnecessarily offensive to the world. But the real application here, I think, is with regard to believers. Verse 2, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And our Lord has in mind those that are under his care. And so it has particular application to believers or those within the outward body of the church. So Scripture addresses this. It addresses how we are not to, to cause offense or unnecessarily grieve. Romans 14 is a number of verses. I read Romans 14, verse 15. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Don't cause offense for such issues as this. Don't be a stumbling block. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. And we, we, we take frivolous things, and you can exchange it from what we eat to all sorts of other things, views and so on, what we say, and we destroy our brother. And the Lord says, woe unto him. First Corinthians 10.32, give none offense. Second Corinthians 6.3, giving no offense in anything. So this, this is apostolic teaching building upon the language of our Lord right here. It were better for him. It would be better if you just took him and plunged him down into the, into the sea than to offend one of mine. So, beloved, be very careful. Your view of sin as a servant of God has to be calibrated by this instruction. Your view of sin is one in which, yes, you can see offenses are everywhere. They're everywhere. There's all sorts of sins and causes for offense. They're never far away. But your concern is, are they coming through me? Am I the conduit of offense? Am I a vehicle to bring offense? Am I one that is causing it in such a way that the Lord says, Whoa! It were better that a millstone were taken and hung around you and you cast into the sea than these offenses carry on. 
This is sober speech. Isn't it? I think sometimes when, when we... I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some in the world out there say, well, I guess that, that makes you feel a little bit better about, you know, it brings you a certain level of comfort. That's, that's, a, that's a nice idea, to, to believe in Jesus. That's a nice idea. Like Christianity is some kind of little additional thing you bring into your life just to make yourself feel a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> this isn't comfortable. This is distinctly uncomfortable. This is, this is the Lord saying, yes, the world's surrounded by sin. Offenses everywhere. I expect better of mine. And you suppress your pride, and you suppress your proclivities, and you suppress all your excuses, because if you cause offense, woe unto you. So the view of sin is very serious. Secondly, their view of forgiveness. The servants of Christ, these ones that are unprofitable servants, they are to have a certain view of forgiveness. Verse 3, take heed to yourselves. Again, you see it. He's, he's putting it on them. Stop, stop looking around you. Look at yourself. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, if he sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith, and so on. So you see the connection? While unnecessary offense should be avoided by believers, we shouldn't deliberately try to cause offense, Christ flips it around and then addresses those that may be on the receiving end of offense. So, so okay, you don't cause offense, but if you're on the receiving end of offense, if you're the one being hurt, here is the model. Here's what I want you to do. And what does he call us to do? Well, before I get into that, I want to read a quote here from J.C. Ryle, because he deals here with forgiveness. And J.C. Ryle, reading his commentary, his remarks, he says, There are few Christian duties which are so frequently and strongly dwelt upon in the New Testament as this of forgiving injuries. It fills a prominent place in the Lord's Prayer. The only profession we make in all that prayer is that of forgiving those who trespass against us. It is a test of being forgiven ourselves. The man who cannot forgive his neighbor, the few trifling offenses he may have committed against him, can know nothing experimentally of that free and full pardon which is offered us by Christ. End quote. You can't know anything about it. Now, in dealing with the subject of forgiveness, the Lord gives specific instruction here. First, we might say, sin warrants rebuke. Sin warrants rebuke. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. It warrants rebuke. The believer offended, the believer sinned against, has a right to confront the person who offends. But the goal is reconciliation. Therefore, the exposure of the sin is to be done in such a manner where the desire is reconciliation or correction or change. Therefore, the exposing of sin must be a meekness, not in pride. You're not trying to make little of someone and lift yourself up. You're coming in a meek manner, rebuking the sin. It requires charity. It demands compassion. If you don't love someone, you will struggle to correct them effectively and in turn, when they repent, to receive it. So be careful about offering rebuke. Just watch. Far better to 
have the offense and, and leave it. If you can't properly address and rebuke in the fashion the Lord instructs here. So if there's sin, there's sin, don't let it live on. You have a right, but it takes a level of maturity. Let me, let me take away all sense of anyone can do this. No, that is not true. Now, anyone can expose a sin. Anyone can say, I see a sin in you. But not everyone can do it according to the instruction that the Lord gives right here. Because this is hard. The offense causes emotional feelings. It causes us to sense a certain thing of wrongdoing, of hurt, of pain. And if we are going to go and expose it, we better be sure we can get a handle on our emotions so that should they repent, we are able to forgive. Sin warrants rebuke. Of course, this is true even in the world. We go around our business in the world. We are told in Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. It's one thing to draw back from unfruitful works of darkness. It's another thing to have the courage to reprove them, but that's what we're told to do. But in relation to the church, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we exhort you, brethren, Warn them that are unruly. That language is they're out of rank. They're like soldiers out of rank. The rank of believers, the church, they're orderly, they're in rank. They're, they're living by the same conduct and code of God's Word. There's one that's unruly, and when they are to be warned, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. But to do this again, we must be merciful. We must have a, a manner of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There's to be mercy that's constantly evoked from the believer. And so many, many verses deal with this. Deal with this. Yes, you can expose sin, but you need to be ready to repent and to forgive, depending on what side you're standing. Mark eleven twenty five. When you stand praying, forgive, if you have ought against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In other words, even in prayer, when you know that there's an issue, you better bring about in your heart a sense of forgiveness or forget about seeking God. Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. It's not, it's not that believers are expected to constantly ignore the wrongs that they experience between one another. The New Testament is clear. In fact, the Old Testament too, but especially the New Testament sees the fact that, that people put them all in the same space. There will be hurt. There will be offense. It's going to happen. And you are given license. You have the right to go to the person that offends you, that trespasses against you, and rebuke them. You have a right to do it. So, sin warrants rebuke. But repentance demands forgiveness without limits. That's the second issue here. Repentance demands forgiveness without limits limits. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Okay. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now, of course, he's not setting seven as a ceiling beyond which if you go there, there's no more forgiveness. The idea is, doesn't matter how many times, even in the same day, <laughs> in the same day, he offends you, she offends you, and you go to them, you say, I'm offended, I'm hurt by this, this was wrong what you did in saying this to me or doing this to me. And they immediately go, you're right, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You have to forgive him. 
Repentance demands forgiveness without limits. We're not going to get through this life without offending people, and we're not going to get through this life without some people at times coming to us and saying, I'm offended by you, please. This is wrong, what you did, what you said. And we are to have a posture that accepts it and receives it. Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. There's this, this, you know, I, I welcome this. Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Proverbs 15.10. But I, I'm giving the warning here. Obviously, the, the initial warning of verse 1 and 2 is don't cause offense, right? Don't be the offending person. Woe to you if you're going around causing offense as if it's nothing. It's not nothing. Don't cause offense. Then turn it around to the different side, the other side. If you are on the receiving end of offense and you go to someone and they seek your forgiveness, immediately responding or eventually responding saying, please, I repent of my sin, you shall forgive them. You have to. You have to be prepared. And you have to be prepared to do it repeatedly, as I've said, without limits. Now, I'm preaching this, and if you're not in that scenario right now, or you've never been in that scenario, you're saying, what's the big deal? Well, it seems simple enough. Here's what happens. <laughs> when the rubber meets the road, now you begin to assess the sincerity of the words. Do they really mean it? I repent. Will you forgive me? I'm not sure. You've already done this four times in the last five hours. I'm not sure you really mean it. And you start assessing it and judging it and trying to find reasons to withhold the exchange of forgiveness. And the Lord says, you don't have that authority. You might turn and say, well, I believe he's, he's a narcissist. It's not here. It's not, it's not a reason. Or you might say, I, I think that she's, she, she uses emotions to manipulate. <laughs> Where is it? You don't get to be judge. You don't get to be the one who sits and pontificates about the sincerity of the repentance. It's not, it's not in your jurisdiction. The Lord Jesus has made this really simple for you. If they come and say, I repent, you take them at their word, unless you have really good reason, I mean evident reason, that there, there's no sincerity in it. But better to err on the other side. Better to err on the side where you say, I'm taking you at face value, I forgive you. That's that if you're wanting to know what, where to lean, like I'm not sure, I don't know if they're really being sincere, Lean on that side. Lean on the side where I'm going to give it. I'm going to, I forgive you. I forgive you, brother. I forgive you, sister. Lean there rather than withholding because you'll look, you'll look a long time in Scripture to find the verse that warrants you withholding your forgiveness, your acceptance of their repentance. You'll look a long time for it. So you are to, you're to, give this transaction. Repentance is a transaction. Repentance and forgiveness is a transaction between parties, and when it's there, you are to receive it. And it can't be withheld when sought. I mean, this, this is, this, this is, these are the kind of things, like... <laughs> Like Ryan said, you know, this is all over the New Testament, this matter of forgiving injuries. And it's there in black and white. The authoritative, inerrant word of the living God is right there. And everyone, those of you who've never been through this, you're really going, yeah, I don't see the problem. 
And others, maybe you've gone through this and you know what I'm getting at here. You know the challenge. And I'm saying to you, you don't have the right. Now, this brings us in to a third aspect of this forgiveness. Forgiveness requires little faith. Forgiveness requires little faith. You might think that verse 5 and 6 are disconnected, that they're not connected, but they are. Because hearing what the Lord is saying, the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. The apostles are, are you know, flesh and blood men. They've lived in this world. They've, they've been hurt before. They understand the dynamics of, of what the Lord is dealing with here, but they're like, okay, <laughs> I don't remember hearing this from the rabbis in the synagogue. This, this, this kind of takes the, the expectation of forgiveness to a level I'm not acquainted with. And so their request is, you're going to have to increase our faith. The measure of faith we have right now will not bring us to easily follow the instruction you're given. They feel it within themselves. They sense that they need an increase of faith in order to do what the Lord is saying. And the Lord says something very interesting. No, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, his point is this, this, the smallest, the smallest point, the quality, let's put it this way, the quality of genuine faith means that if it exists at all, you will not have a problem with what he has said. The quality of genuine faith means if it exists at all, you will not have a problem with what he has said. You don't need an increase of faith. You just need the real faith, as small as it is, as tiny as it may appear to be. If it's the real thing, you will not have a problem. Now, this is consistent with what he has taught, that you can't be forgiven if you withhold forgiveness. A mark of his people is that when they have a wrong between another, and they come to them and they say, will you forgive me, that they're able to forgive. That's a mark of the genuine people of God. And so it doesn't take great faith. You don't get to excuse the challenge of, of what he is calling his disciples to be by saying, well, we need greater faith. No, he's not saying, well, if you're really mine, if you're actually mine, you belong to me, you're a true servant, then the quality of the faith and those who are mine will always understand what is being required of them here. And they won't have a problem with it. In other words, if you really struggle with this and you come to a point where you can't do it, you immediately take heed to yourselves. Are you really the Lord's? Do you have real, saving, regenerating, life-transforming, sanctifying faith? Here we are. Let's just, let's just understand the scene. We have committed offense after offense after offense against the living God. We who are dirt. Take his commandments and we just throw them aside as if they're nothing. You say, oh yes, the God of heaven and earth who created all things, I'm ignoring you, I'm casting aside your word, I'm going to do my own thing here, I'm going to live life by my rules. And we traverse a life of rebellion against the living God. 
And many of us did so for years. Years and years and years and years. Even if we didn't do it for years. Even if we, it's only been a short time we've, been, we've, we've taken all, like the plurality of our sins. Innumerable on a daily basis. And then we come to him and we say, Lord, forgive me. And what does he do? Rome comes and adds things like penance, but the Lord doesn't. The Lord pronounces forgiveness, gives assurance to the penitent child of God. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth you from all sin. He is faithful and He is just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. One appeal on the cross, dying for your crimes and your guilt and shame. Lord, remember me. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The cry of a wretched Manasseh who had dismantled all the legacy of his father's work and his reform in the nation who'd spat upon his own father's name in every conceivable way and brought all sorts of sin into the nation and is dragged out by the Assyrians, humbled by them, then cries out to God, having literally destroyed the nation and assured its judgment from God. He cries out. And the Lord hears his cry. And saves him. Here we petty creatures of the dust between ourselves will withhold forgiveness. Let's get it right. You withhold forgiveness when sought. You need to do some heart searching. You really do. Thirdly and finally, their view of service. Their view of service. Verse 7. Which of you having a servant? Asking the disciples here to envisage something here. Having a servant plowing or feeding cattle. will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field. Go and sit down to meat. And will not rather say unto him. Make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me. Till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. In other words, what's the likely scene here? Someone who's gone and served and worked all day comes back into the house and the master hasn't eaten yet. What's likely to happen here? Is the master going to serve the servant? No. The servant has to G himself up and do more. He needs to go and make ready and provide for his master. And only once all the work is done can he relax and sit. Verse 9, doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Is he, is he all taken? Whoa, you're such a wonderful servant. You've been out there slogging all day, and now you've come in and made my dinner. You're so wonderful. No, the point is this. He did what his duty is, what it calls him to do. This is, this, this is his life. This is what is expected of him. So he says, I, I trow not, or I think not. So likewise, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. (sighs) Stay low, go slow, and don't blow. Whatever he's asking of you, When he says to you, okay, you've been wronged. Go, go and rebuke the brother. Go and rebuke the sister. You've been wronged. Okay, I'll do it, Lord. But be ready when they seek forgiveness. When they repent, that you offer them that forgiveness. And then if it goes on, if it happens three times that day, four times that day, seven times, if it's done innumerable times over the course of a marriage, if it's, you know, whatever, it's like just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, but they keep coming and saying, 
forgive me, I repent of this. You have done that which is your duty to do. You see, we, we don't set this criteria, do we? The Lord sets the criteria. We're, we're not, we, don't, we don't sit down and write, down, write a contract about how believers are to in, interact with one another. This church doesn't say, okay, here's what you all are to do. Something happens, you're going to do this. We, don't, we haven't written up our own contract. We believe that when you profess faith in Christ and you say, I am the Lord's, that we can turn to any portion of this word and say, do it, brother. Do it, sister. Your master commands it. And if you have any faith at all, you'll say, okay. If he commands it, okay. The master commands it. You see, but I have forgiven them a hundred times or more. You're like, you're like the person who's gone out and worked all day, slogged all day and come back and then there's more to do. And at the end of it, you've, you've just done what is your duty to do. It's just your duty. Does it leave you vulnerable sometimes? Sure it does. Sure it does. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying, like, we can read this and say, well, this is the most simplest aspect of the Christian life. It's not. People clearly struggle with this. But it's, it's doing what is your duty to do. And you don't get a pat on your back for forgiving someone when they seek for it. You've done what is your duty to do. And again, you, you come and you say, well, well, I feel vulnerable. I feel maybe I'll be taken advantage of. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. Does your faith then not rise and say, you're judged? Do, we, do you not have the Psalms to turn to where David constantly is turning and saying, God, you're my judge. You see what's going on. I'm making appeal. I mean, that's the thing. You, you, you follow this. You follow it, and it places you in a vulnerable position at times, and you are left at times coming then. You, you obey, you do the exchange, but maybe your heart's filled with doubt. Maybe you begin to imagine they're going to do it again. Maybe it'll be worse this time. But, but you, you go before the Lord, and you say, Lord, Lord, please. Judge over this. Rule. Guide, lead, protect, save, deliver. You don't get to go through life without learning and needing to relearn the fact that God is your refuge. And you have to run to Him sometimes. And run to Him because you've obeyed His word. You've obeyed His word and you feel vulnerable and you run to Him. He's your refuge. So you can serve all day, serve all evening, serve until everyone's got everything that, they've, that they need. No thanks, no appreciation, no commendation. So likewise ye, when ye, have, ye shall have done all those things which, were, which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is, was our duty to do. And so you do that generally in your Christian life. And you do it in every other aspect of ministry. You, you say, I feel called to the to gospel ministry. And God sends you to some little part of the world where things are tough and difficult, and maybe no one appreciates where you've come from. Maybe you in your mind you're thinking, Do you realize the job that I left to come here? And you, you're acting like, you know, you you've earned the right for me to be here, and you start having these lofty ideas about yourself. No, no, brother, forget it. You've done that which was your duty to do. And so you go, you go, you go, you go to Africa, you go to China, you go to America, you go wherever you're sent, you go. <laughs> you go there, and people are grateful and thankful that's just gravy. If they're not, you've done that which was your duty to do. So get at it, brother. Be faithful, sister. Do that which is your duty to do. 
Don't resign it just to the lofty ideas of Christian service and surrendering all and walking down the aisle and going to wherever to serve the Lord. Make it real in the daily exchanges with the people of God. Don't offend. Woe unto you if you do. When you're offended, be ready to rebuke and forgive and be more mature and honor the Lord even to your own hurt. And then at the end say, unprofitable servants, thank you Lord for saving my soul. He is worthy. Is he not worthy? What more does he have to do to prove to you that he is worthy of this kind of servitude? You will never be in hell, Christian. You'll never be where the rich man was in the previous chapter. You'll never suffer. You'll never endure the agonies, the everlasting agonies of God's wrath upon sin. In that place prepared for the devil and his angels, you'll not be there. So, may the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. I don't know where we get this idea that the Lord can only ask us to do easy things. No, it's not true. And you sing words regularly. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine, and so on. You promise to resign your life. You promise to give up things. You, you sing all these, this language of vow and servitude, and then he comes and says, well... I want you to go and forgive. And you say, Lord, I can't do it. All your words are empty. It's just empty. You should be ashamed of yourself. You take the name of Christ, receive forgiveness from God every day, and you don't know how to deal with offenses. Gracious God, we pray, have mercy on us. Deliver us from causing offense. Make us above reproach, please. Please, O oh God. It's so hard. I, I think of some of us are in very public places. There's teachers here and others that are targets because they're business owners and they're invisible places where people would want to see them fall. Or ministers and elders and deacons. and God, please, hedge us in. Keep us from causing offense. And help us all, O oh God, to, to know how to rebuke, to reprove, to restore one another in a spirit of meekness. Help us always to be ready to receive warmly and with compassion the repentance of another. All oh, maintain the unity of your church. Bless us then. Thank you for your word. We love you, Lord Jesus. You're so patient with us. Impart that patience in our hearts, we pray. Help us now as we go out into the world. As we face all of its wickedness and all of its offenses, may we be distinct, marked by different character. And may they take knowledge of us that we've been with Jesus. Bless our time of fellowship. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.